Well, good morning again to everyone here in person, those up in the fellowship hall and those watching online. A joy to be able to gather together in this way and to gather together around the Word. And so if you would, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. As you, tur- as you are turning there, uh, just by way of a quick announcement, Lord willing, uh, Carpenter family will have a couple of weeks off, and so we are going to take a pause on our Exodus series, and for the next three weeks, we're going to take some time in the Psalms, focusing on Psalms of, of comfort and strength. Uh, next week, Dr. George Renner will be here, and he'll be preaching from Psalm 62. In two weeks, on May 2nd, uh, Sean Allen, our pastor of student ministries, will be preaching from Psalm 46. And then on Mother's Day, May 9th, I'll be preaching from Psalm 27. And so just to give you a sense of where we're, doing, where we're heading for these next few weeks, hopefully these psalms will be timely encouragements for you for strength and comfort as we are following the Lord in this world. All right, but we have some, we have some important stuff to tackle today, and that's Exodus chapter 34. And so if you're there in your Bibles, uh, Exodus 34, we're going to read verses 1 through 9 to start our time together. Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain." Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone, like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. God, we come to your word thankful that you have revealed through it your character, your worth, your works, your ways, and it is marvelous. I pray that we would approach it as such a marvel of your grace to us. Give us an appetite and a desire and affection for your word. And now as we look at it, think on it, hear it proclaimed, be with us. Hearing, preaching, receiving, the believing, the trusting, this your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
You know that feeling, maybe some in here know it well, that vulnerability, that uncertainty, maybe even a little bit of fear when you have messed up and you've wronged someone or you've hurt someone and now you have to interact with them in that moment. You know that feeling? Will you be welcomed? Will you be forgiven? Will you be restored that unsettled like vulnerability and fear that comes in that moment. Exodus 34 comes to us in the context of a horrific moment of idolatry. On the very base of the mountain in which God's glory was was descending and dwelling on the top and the thunder and the lightning and the booms and the shakes and the clearly unmistakable moment The people of God created a golden calf and worshipped it. That's the context of Exodus 34. And it brings an unsettled question or an unsettling question. How will God deal with these idolatrous people who've abandoned Him, rejected Him, and embraced something false? How will God deal with them? It's important for us because the answer there is kind of how will God deal with us? How will God deal with us? What kind of character does God have? As we see in this chapter, we see an overwhelming, gracious, and merciful God. Because of the gracious commitment God has to us, where this chapter takes us, we can enjoy communion with Him. I'm going to say that again. Because of God's gracious commitment to us, as it unfolds in this chapter, you and I, we can have communion with Him. Because here we find a God merciful and gracious. By His mercy and grace, we're going to see a number of things. The first thing that we find by His mercy and grace is the character of God revealed. The character of God revealed. In the passage that we read to begin our time together, we see a progressive revelation of God. He is self-declaring who He is. His worth, what He is like. We are learning here more about God and His character. We're learning more about who He is and how, how that shapes what He does and how He responds to wayward people. And as we consider the things that God says about Himself Before we do that, we need to keep in mind three very significantly important things about God as we then go about understanding what He says about Himself. The first is this. God is unlike anything else in all of creation. There is no one or nothing like God. He is unique in all of the cosmos, in heaven and earth, below, above, anywhere you could go. God is the most unique in all of everywhere. He is unique. 
Secondly, as we consider the things that God reveals about himself, he's uniquely these things. So his definition is going to be very different than our definition of these things. Secondly, what we find about God or know about God is that he is perfect in every way. So whatever it is he says about himself, he is the unique and perfect version of that. There's nothing in God that is is not quite perfect. It's all perfect. All perfect. So God is unique. God is perfect. And then thirdly, we find that God is eternal and infinite. Or another way to say that, God is always and unlimited. So, whatever we see God say about himself here to Moses and to the people, it is unique, it is perfect, it is always And it is unlimited. So when we see that God says, I am merciful, I am uniquely merciful, unlike anything else in all of the cosmos. I am perfectly merciful. Nothing else is perfect in all of its mercy. I am always merciful and my mercy is unlimited. So when we think about what God is saying about himself, he is unique, he is perfect, he is always and unlimited, whatever it is that he says about himself. And... He's revealing more and more as the pages of Scripture unfold. As we considered last week in Exodus chapter 3, we get a name, Yahweh. I am that I am. I am who I am. I am the I am. Right? And then last week in Exodus 33, he added a little bit more to what that means. I will be merciful to whom I am merciful. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So he adds a little bit more to that sort of structure of who he is. And in our chapter today, we see that he reveals even more about what kind of grace and mercy he is. And if you would look again at verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, A God, merciful and gracious. Okay, we got those two things, Yahweh and grace and mercy, last week. And so he adds more to this. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping the steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Amazing. This is amazing. What we see here about God in these verses is that he is, first of all, slow to anger. So, what kind of grace and mercy? What kind of Yahweh? Gracious and merciful one. Well, what kind of grace and mercy? The slow to anger kind. He isn't provoked in the sense that you and I get provoked to our anger. He has a long-suffering patience with an idolatrous, wayward people and a sinful, broken world. Because he has an incredible promise that he is going to see all the way through that's going to bring about redemption. The slow to anger kind of grace and mercy. We also see that it is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When you're in your Old Testament and you come across that expression, steadfast love or steadfast love and faithfulness sort of linked closely together, it's speaking to God's covenantal love, that is, his Keeping, making, keeping, fulfilling, promise kind of love. He doesn't bail on that. In fact, 
it says here, he reveals about himself to us, is that it's the abounding kind. Think of a, a, a spring, a natural spring that is sourced by a deep well that never runs dry, just bubbling and babbling. And, and, and the f- life all around it is just flourishing. He doesn't run out of keeping his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the kind of grace and mercy that God reveals about himself. We see that then he adds even more detail to that. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his commitment. He doesn't bail on it. So he makes one out of grace and mercy and he keeps it with grace and mercy. He doesn't toss it aside when his people are wayward, tossing him aside. That kind of grace and mercy. Then we see he forgives untold sinners. Now, your Bible translation says thousands. And you're like, well, that seems like a told amount of sinners. But in the Bible, thousands is, is used more sort of symbolically or metaphorically in the sense of a great multitude. An, un, an unceasing number. It's this incredible number. It's an incredible number that God is gracious and merciful to. And then note next, he says that he will uphold justice for sin. That he does this forgiving, covenant-keeping, steadfast love-showing, slow to anger, grace and mercy to us in such a way that doesn't remove justice for sin, but upholds it. God is unique, and he is perfect, and he is always, and he is unlimited, he is too marvelous for words. It is revealed in a moment of, keep in mind, Exodus 32, time-wise, was not that long ago. And here, God is revealing more in the context of, of an idolatrous people who practiced a pagan rave at the base of his mountain. He's revealing to them grace and mercy. Then what we find in this character of God being revealed moment is that there comes with it restoration and a response. What we see here in the beginning of Exodus 34 is that God restores His Word. The Word is restored. He restores the tablets. The broken tablets representing the broken covenant by the idolatrous people are not only replaced, but restored by the merciful and gracious God. Sin doesn't get the last word. It doesn't. God gets the last word. God gets the last word out of His grace and His mercy. So the sin of Exodus 32 doesn't obliterate the people. We get Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Project that a little bit to yourself. Your sin doesn't get the last word with God. God's grace and mercy for you, a sinner, does. This is marvelous. This is amazing. This is what God is revealing about Himself. God revealing to sinners on the heels of their horrific idolatry. I'm gracious and merciful and I'm going to show you. And that leads then to what can like, be the only natural response to such an amazing thing. Such an amazing moment. What does Moses do in response to 
God revealing more about who he is in a moment of great sin and calamity of the people. What does Moses do? We'll look at verse 8 again. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The only fitting response to a merciful and gracious God is worship. He's worth it. He's worth all the praise, all the affection, all the adoration. And note what Moses does. First, it's quick. Moses' response is quick. It's quick. That's, that's an important detail. It's immediate. It's without delay. It's singular in priority. It's so responsive. This is amazing. I cannot believe that you're actually going to be with us and you're going to be gracious and merciful to us. We made a golden calf and worshipped it. We abandoned you. We rejected you. We embraced this fake thing. And you're going to still be gracious to us. His immediate singular focus response is worship. For you, a sinner who is saved by grace in Christ, is your response to God a meh? That He would forgive you and restore you and call you His own? The only fitting response is worship and let's be fast. God's slow to anger so that we could be quick to worship. What else does Moses do? Well, he's humble. He's humble. What's his posture? Well, his head is bowed low to the earth. It's an awareness. There's a humble awareness and recognition of this moment. An awareness of the gulf that exists between a holy God and a sinful people. And that gulf being bridged by an overly gracious and merciful God. There's no pride. There's no ownership in this. There's just humble, worshipful recognition that God is being overwhelmingly gracious. And then, thirdly, we see that it is worship. That is, it is Godward. While his posture is humble, his affections and direction are Godward. No, nothing and no one else deserves all the delighting in, deserves all the declaring of ultimate worth other than the God who is gracious and merciful. That's the sort of response that's fitting to the character of God being revealed. So we ask our, our hearts that question. Is that my response right now to who God is and what he has done for us in the gospel of Christ? That we would have quick and humble and Godward worship in our lives. That our lives would be reflecting more and more of, of this very character of God that we have received through Jesus. Oh, may it be so. So in this passage, in Exodus 34, we see the character of God revealed more than we've seen as it's progressed through the pages of Scripture. Secondly, we find the commitment of God renewed. In Exodus 34, we see the commitment or covenant of God renewed. Covenant is the word that just means that super big, important, awesome, special promise that God makes with man, with this particular family these people, that this promise of, uh, that is, it is consistent with who he is. The nature of this big promise that God is making is an overflow of the nature of his being. 
That is, what he does is consistent with who he is. And what will he do? Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10, And he, God, said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been created and all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. On the heels of a disastrous moment of idolatry, God doesn't just merely overlook their sin. He deals with it. And then God reinforces and renews his commitment to them. He doesn't just say, fine, whatever. He overwhelmingly says, I'm going to do awesome, marvelous things that all will see. Now, that's staggering. Remember what I said about God? He's unique and perfect and always and unlimited. It's that unique one that really stands out because you and I, we've been wronged before. And we've probably have tolerated uh, that person and, and offered some sort of measured sense of forgiveness. And there's probably a low, like seven foot ceiling level of restoration into that relationship. At least for a time, right? Because you're still salty about it, to be honest. God's so unique. He doesn't just forgive, but he says, I'm going to do even amazing, more amazing things through you guys. That's, it's incredible. I don't, I, don't I, I, I know, I know, Sean Carpenter, I know that I have a very small view of God. <laughs> He's huge. And, and glorious and marvelous. And here he's revealing just a, just a glimpse of it. How incredible he is. That he would treat sinners with such marvelous grace. Now, what should the response of the people be? Well, really, it should be just like Moses. Moses' response is a precursor to the people. And if you were to read the rest of that middle section of Exodus 34, you know, 11 through 26 you'll find that it's sort of a restating or a reapplying of the Ten Commandments and the commandments all centered around worship. So the response of a graced and been given mercy people should be one of, of worship. And it's really a twofold response. It's really a twofold response. First is, is that it is the call to the only real true worship, just like what we considered in the Ten Commandments. The only real true worship. It's, it's the reiterating that the only response that is appropriate is to only worship God, really, truly worship Him. That our lives would reflect that. Anything else is a failure to grasp the severity of sin and also the, the, the overwhelming nature of the merciful and gracious God. The one side of a coin is that we are called in response to a God of grace and mercy 
to only real true worship. The other side of the coin that we find in in verses 11 through 26 is that we are to smash idols. That we are to smash idolatry when we find it. Given instructions into the land as they were promised, in verse 12 we find these words, Take care as you go into this land, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Follow this. Follow my instructions. And he goes on to say, in verse 13, to tear down, break, and cut down all evidences of idolatry in the land. Because all of those things are a snare. Which is another way of saying, it's a trap. It's a snare. It's a snare, a trap for the heart. It wants to entangle and ensnare the heart. So that the heart would abandon God and then reject God and then embrace something that is false. That's the trap. That's the snare. So part of our fight in smashing idolatry in our hearts is first to pursue only real, true worship that we fill our heads and our hearts with the the things of God in His Word, with the people of God when we're gathered together when we're sharing our lives with one another, that that would then be the the thing that is fueling and feeding our hearts. But then we also need to be alert to idolatry that lingers around in our lives. They were to tear down, break, and smash all evidences of it. Leave no doubt, no hint, no remains. Otherwise, it will ensnare their hearts. And that same sort of call is for us this day. And we have to ask ourselves, what idols do we let linger around in the land of our hearts? Perhaps it's the idols of comfort or acceptance. Maybe it's the idol of entertainment. Or or maybe it's the idol of Instagram. We used to say keeping up with the Joneses, but now it's just keeping up with Instagram. Whatever that might be, and maybe that's not for all of us in here, and I understand that, but there's a heart that we have that is Easily complicit in factory making of idols. What sort of idols linger around in our hearts? Or maybe we, we, we don't have necessarily idols that we're clinging to, asking for them to give to us what only God gives in fullness. Maybe our hearts are listless right now. Maybe our hearts are unengaged. Maybe our hearts are unmotivated. Maybe our hearts are lazy. And therefore, very susceptible to be ensnared. The Word of God reveals the character of God and the worth of God and the plan of God and the person of God to the people of God, so that their hearts would be radically made new and transformed and their lives reflect His glory. And you, every one of us in this room, no matter our age, have the wonderful joy and privilege of experiencing that. So ask yourself, is my heart listless over that? 
Is my heart unmotivated when I think of the character of God? If that's the case, then I plead with you to plead with God to do a rescuing work in your heart. The character of God is revealed and the commitment of God is renewed, leading us to this most incredible moment. The communion of God is enjoyed. The communion of God with him is enjoyed. The last section of Exodus 34 is quite a remarkable passage. It shows the radiance of the life-changing joy of being in God's presence. Take a moment and read those words, starting verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Dwelling with God is probably, most likely, I don't think you're going to find anything better, the best thing ever. (laughs) The most amazing thing to be with God. Moses came out all shiny. Now, I lived 10 years in California. I I soaked up a lot of sun, and that is all gone now. I am not shiny. I am pasty. And besides the weird wizardry of this week, I don't know what to do about that. (laughs) New England, whew. Also unique. (laughs) Moses was with God, and he shone. What What a remarkable picture of a gracious and merciful God. It's limited, though, to Moses, though. You see that? You see the unsettled feeling that the people had? a little unsettling. God's that amazing that it changed Moses and it made the others feel a little unsettled. Yes, how awesome would it be to be with God? Well, Moses himself was evidence of it, but the inverse is true. How unsettling is it to not be with God or to maybe have God against you or to feel distance and separation from God. So what do we do in those moments? What do we do with that unsettled feeling that maybe we might have because sin seems to sort of entangle and snare our hearts? What do we do? We want to be close with God. We want to be shiny like Moses. We want to know God in this way. And yet we feel the apprehension because of our sin. 
Just like the people felt apprehension and, and felt something different about Moses and what they saw. So what do we do? Well, we have to rehearse the implications of God's character down, all the way down. We have to rehearse the implications of His character all the way down to the fact that God is gracious and merciful because He wants to commune with redeemed and rescued sinners. We have to rehearse that to our hearts. He's not just being gracious and merciful, getting us up out of a pit, patting us on the head and saying, meet you at the finish line, you got to just get there, don't mess up again. He's gracious and merciful because He wants to be with His redeemed and restored people. And we need to rehearse that to our hearts because our flesh will want us to believe something that's not true about God. So we have to tell ourselves what God has said about Himself, otherwise we'll believe things that aren't true. You do that in your relationships with other people. That awkward silence between you and your spouse, you start believing things that aren't true about your spouse, or at least what your spouse is thinking about you, and, and then that just gets all everything mixed up and messed up. Anyone married in here, any length of time knows what I'm talking about. Or it doesn't have to be married, you know this in various kinds of relationships. So if we're not tenderizing our hearts with what God has revealed about Himself regularly, with great earnest and affection and rehearsal, then we're going to start believing things that aren't true about ourselves and about God. So we have to rehearse these things. God is gracious and merciful. You have to tell your heart that again and again. You have to read it in His Word again and again. God is gracious and merciful. And we need to tell ourselves God will and has kept His promise. He will keep His promises. He has kept His promises. He will not stop keeping His promises. We have to tell ourselves that because we'll believe things that aren't true. And we need to know that God is gracious and merciful and will keep His promises because God wants to commune with redeemed and restored sinners. He wants fellowship with rescued sinners. We have to tell ourselves that because we will believe things that are not true about ourselves and about God if we're not regularly rehearsing those truths revealed in this word to our hearts. And as we do that, you will not be able to escape the reality that God does this in full measure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. How all of it is progressing to Him. How Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's character. The ultimate fulfillment of God's commitment. The ultimate means of our communion with God. How it all is leading to Jesus. How He's the hero who overcomes our sin and the grave who bridges the gap from a holy God and an idolatrous people. He's the one that we need. And so as we see that and think through this moment in Exodus 34, it compels and, and, and it, it catapults our hearts to see in Christ first the character of God revealed. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. He is in fact the final word from God. He is the final word of God. He is the final word on God, on the whole matter. Nothing more that you're waiting on from God, because He said it all through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says such. Hebrews 1 says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, this Son, this Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He is the final, fullest, forever revelation of God's character. It's Jesus. And Jesus is also the commitment of God upheld. It's the covenant of God fulfilled. Jesus is the one. He fulfills all of God's redemptive purposes and promises and plans. He fulfills it all. Galatians chapter 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, when it was time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When it was time, Jesus arrived to do what God promised and planned and purposed to do, to bring about redemption so that we could be welcomed into the family of God. Staggering. And Jesus is the ultimate means of our communion with God enjoyed. Christ removes the veil so we all get to be shining together. He removes the barrier, the unsettledness. He answers, will God welcome us? Will God forgive us? Will God restore us? And the answer is this overwhelming yes in the person and work of Christ. I want to encourage you in the week ahead to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, the apostle who wrote that letter, was explaining the gospel ministry. And he brings in our very passage and says, Jesus brings about something even greater than what Moses experienced. Stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus brings something greater than what Moses experienced and was all shiny. Amazing. With that, verse 16 and 18. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. No more uncertainty, no more unsettledness. Will God welcome you, forgive you, restore you? Yes. And we all, with unveiled face, not like Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory character of God revealed through the word, commitment of God upheld through Christ, communion with God enjoyed forever because Jesus has removed it all. And this comes to the one who turns to the Lord. So all in this room, turn to the Lord. You will find a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness who forgives sin and restores you right with Him. You will find one all that provides all that is needed to be right with Him in the person and work of Christ. And while this life can be filled with hardships and struggles and the consequences of sin can linger around in our lives, there will be one great and glorious day when none of that will be. The only thing that will be is communing with God and enjoying that forever. What a gracious and merciful God we have. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do that work in us. We pray that you would help us.
Help us to see your character on display. On display in your word, on display ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we have hearts that turn to the Lord. And with unveiled face, behold your glory and enjoy your, your presence in our lives. God, do this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.